Oh. I, I loved him and I lost him and somebody took him and nothing's been done. I don't, I don't know what happened. He met up with Hannah. That's basically that's the last time we saw David. Look, I, I think that the fact that within the first couple of days we had no firm line of inquiry, I knew that it was going to be a challenging case. David had probably had his spinal cord severed in the first blow, and that he had been rendered completely useless. Well, some homicides they can be uh, extremely brutal attacks, and there may, in some cases, be a, a clear purpose behind that. You know, it may be about sending a message. I'm Nicole Hogan, and this is Eight Minutes: The Unsolved Murder of David Breckenridge. In this podcast, we will follow the police investigation, look at what the Unsolved Homicide Squad has done so far, what the impact has been on David's family and friends, and appeal to you, the listener, to help us catch a killer. Nobody dies over two ecstasy pills and a couple of lines of coke. That's a very personal thing, to to attack someone's head. So whenever a boy gets drunk at the pub, they punch each other's face. It's a very emotional thing. Stephen and Karen Breckenridge should be wishing their son David a happy 29th birthday today. Instead, they're searching for his killers. Anyone with information is urged to call Crime Stoppers. Samantha Armitage, 7 News. How could someone hate Dave that much? We wanted answers, yeah, straight away. And they didn't come. That was something I had to come with to give to because I knew enough about police process that they're going to trace back steps and that I cross made to Dave at whatever time that that probably they were the first person they needed to rule out and I was like, I'm a fucking suspect in a murder case. I just have to say, I hope you go to hell. (laughs) I don't want to die not knowing what happened to David. This story is about a cold case murder, just one of hundreds of cold case mysteries that face the New South Wales Police today. When I started investigating a series of cold cases, I kept coming back to this one. There's something about this story that I can't let go. While I've been researching this case, I've spoken to people who have made my skin crawl. I uncovered a love triangle, I discovered new evidence, and I'm going to take you on this journey of intriguing twists and turns in the hope we can find who killed David Brackenridge. So why is this story so compelling? Well, admittedly, David was incredibly good looking. He had that young Matt Damon vibe. He went to the prestigious Barker College. He was a med student, a rugby player, and he was almost always smiling. He looked like the kind of guy you'd want to be friends with, or as you'll hear more of soon, the guy you wanted to be your boyfriend. So it made me think, why hadn't I heard of this story before? Typically a cold case will be picked at regularly by the media, but for some reason this case has been forgotten or looked over. But why? From what I can tell at this stage, there are no suspects, no murder weapon, no witnesses, and police have no leads. So what do we know? At 11.52pm on August 10, 2002, David Breckenridge made two phone calls from a public phone box. Eight minutes later, he would be dead. Yeah, because I saw him earlier in the day. He had popped over back to my house, or where I was living in Greenwich, 
I guess, sort of early to mid-afternoon in between shifts. He was doing a double shift at the hotel and he popped over for a couple of hours just in between shifts and we were chatting then, I guess, about the Friday night and, um, you know, and, and what happened. Friday, August 9, was David's 28th birthday. David celebrated with his best mate, Phil Noyce, and Phil's girlfriend, Georgina. Yeah, well, we'd, we'd all worked that day, because Phil and I worked in the city, so we all met at the Wynyard Hotel, and he was, on great, he was in great spirits, and he was really happy, and he, you know, we had lots of drinks and, you know, shots at the bar, and he was celebrating his birthday, and um, all his friends were there, and... I mean, Dave was always someone that always was so lovely to me out of all Phil's friends, and I felt like we had a special connection. And then um, I think we drove him into, into town, into his, into his work there for, for the evening shift, and I think um, you know, we made a loose arrangement then for him to come back to, to my place in Greenwich to watch the rugby. It was the All Blacks and South Africa playing, and that usually kicks off sort of around midnight or, or thereabouts because it was played in South Africa. And it was sort of a loose arrangement. He said, you know, I'll, I'll see how I go. I might be too tired after the double shift. I might just go home and crash. Or, you know, if I do, I'll, I'll give you a call and, and we'll see you then. And, you know, I didn't give too much thought and I thought he would have called earlier. So I just assumed that he had, you know, probably finished his shift and, and gone straight home. So I was a, not so much surprised, but, um, yeah, I thought he'd call earlier and then he called you know, from St Leonard's about, you know, just before midnight. And he said, you know, noisy, hi, you know, it's me, I'm coming over, I've picked up a six-pack, I'll be there, I'll be there soon. And, and that was it. David's mum, Karen, says a passing motorist saw David's body on the road just after midnight. Um, Helen um, indicated that she... Um, had seen David on the road as she was driving past and was thought at first that he was um, perhaps had too much to drink and had fallen, but he'd fallen on the road and she was very, very worried that another car would come up the laneway and not see him and run over him. So she very quickly thought, I thought, that to go down the next street, which took her, I assume, right down to River Road and then came back up the laneway that David was in, um, and parked her car and, and came over to assess the situation and still didn't really realise, I don't think, that, that what had happened to him had happened and rushed to get a blanket from her car to cover him um, and then in sort of trying to work out what happened, she lifted his hand and it was, her hand was wet um, and then she realised there was blood. Um, still thought that might have been an injury to his head when he'd fallen um, and tried to see whether he was breathing and uh, that sort of thing. Um, and then um, thought, well, she'd better call an ambulance and I'm not sure whether she had a phone or I can't remember now, but um, she did, I think, initially call for the police and nobody, or the ambulance, and nobody came. Um, and. Um, after some time she decided she'd better hail down somebody passing and that was very difficult. People drove past and didn't stop and eventually a young man um, did stop and it turned out he was from the shop um, down the street which was a pizza shop. He'd just closed up for the night and um, 
he stopped and, and he didn't have a mobile phone but ran back to his shop and made the call again to the ambulance. And I think after a little while ambulances turned up um, and it seemed that um, they'd made a mistake in the Berry Street that they went to. They went to North Sydney instead of St Leonard's. Anyhow, um, Helen, um, I think, talked to the ambulance and they eventually gave her back her blanket and um, helped her leave the laneway. Um, but she had talked to David while, while, he, while she was waiting for the ambulance because she felt that he might still be alive and um, that she could give him some comfort and let him know that somebody was actually with him and that he was all right and that she'd call for help. And we were very, very grateful for that, that she'd talked to him. And we hoped that he was alive to realise that somebody was there and was being kind after what he'd been through. Yeah, I guess even half an hour later, I'm thinking, okay, you know, it's a five minute walk, Dave's not here. Hmm, you know, what's going on here? Another half an hour or so, I guess after about an hour or so, I'm to think, you know, something's probably not, something's odd here. And, um, but then at the same time, I thought, well, Dave, you know, he's, you know, he knows everyone. He's, he's probably just chatting to someone that he knows or he's gone back to the, gone back to the pub, so I didn't think too much of it. And I guess it was probably, you know, after, I th probably watched all of the rugby. It was probably two hours later, which I thought, well, hang on, you know, something's not right here. So I think at that stage, um, I walked outside, walked out the front of the house and up towards the Pacific Highway. And um, Anglo Road, where we lived, it was an old cul-de-sac and there were sort of like overgrown bushes in between the cul-de-sac and then the little walkway through to the Pacific Highway. So I sort of had a look around there. Perhaps he, you know, would was drunk, I don't know, and fallen over, or he was asleep, or, you know, I don't know what's going through your head, but just had a quick look in there and there was nothing there. So then I continued walking up to the Pacific Highway and, you know, just stuck my head around the corner and could sort of see down uh, towards St Leonard's um, and couldn't see anything, you know, really going on there and had to look up the other way and couldn't see anything. Um, you know, I guess I was... The podcast Faith on Trial looks into Hillsong, both in Australia and the U.S., and takes both the listener and hosts on unexpected twists and turns in the story of Brian Houston and the singing preachers. There are two incidents involving Pastor Brian. The Australian journalists uncovered a litany of alleged criminal behavior in the megachurch. Financial gifts were being given to the leaders of the church. Listen to Faith on Trial Hillsong ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts today or wherever you get your podcasts. I thought, well, perhaps he's been hit by a car or crossing the road or, you know, something like that. But, um, you know, you couldn't see any, you know, police or ambulances or anything, you know, out of the ordinary going on at all. So I think at that stage, that's when I came back home and then um, spoke to my girlfriend at the time, Georgina, uh, my wife now, and sort of woke her up and told her, look, I'm, you know, I'm a bit worried about Dave. It got to like, I think I, about an hour later and he still hadn't turned up and that's when we decided we'd call the hospitals. And I actually called from my mobile and we called Royal North Shore Hospital. Um, you know, I said my name, I'm looking for a friend, David Breckenridge. 
uh, has he been admitted or can you tell me anything? And then at that stage I remember very clearly that the person, uh, whoever received that call, was quite, uh, 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 just one moment, just one moment. Then they put me on hold and then about five minutes later I think uh, another nurse or a more senior person came on the phone and said, um, just one moment, we're, you know, we'll, we'll get back to you. So I remember being on hold there for you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes and then eventually, this is probably, I guess, 2am or, or thereabouts by then, um, and, and Dave you know, subsequently you know, was, was dead by then and had been for probably two hours. But, um, but then I guess a senior nurse or a doctor came on the line and said, Dave's in surgery at the moment. Uh, we're not sure how he's doing. Um, can we take down your name and your number and we'll get back to you? And so that was that. And then right at that stage, that's when the, the real, I guess, panic and, um, you know, terror sort of hit. And, you know, you're thinking, well, what the heck has happened here? So at this stage, we didn't know what had gone on and we lay back in bed and Phil fell asleep. I didn't. And then the next thing, the police turned up at the door. And I can't remember, I think it was about three. This is where I get a bit hazy. I don't know what time. Maybe three o'clock. And it was, you know, that classic cars pull up. I was like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? I don't know what's happening. I still felt he'd been hit by a car and killed. I thought, well, he's... For us not to know, he's on the operating table because the nurses were saying more or less he's on the operating table. You know, they were very cagey about what they were going to tell us. And... um, But we'd never thought murder. Yeah, I, I, I I don't think I even had time to you know, process what was happening. And I remember distinctly opening the door and there were two detectives there and I think there were um, two uniformed officers slightly behind them. And they said, are you Philip Noyce? And I said, yes. And they said, um, I said, is this about Dave? And they said, yes. And they said, I'm we're sorry, David's been the victim of an attack. As a result of his injuries, he's died. And we'd like to come in to ask you some questions. Detective Sergeant Stuart Leggett was at home when he received a phone call at 2.30 in the morning. A colleague told him that a man's body had been discovered on the corner of the Pacific Highway and Berry Lane. Uh, he had a, what appeared to be several defensive lacerations to both arms, lacerations to his head and puncture wounds to his back. So I, I arrived there about 4 a.m. Um, and the crime scene was on the footpath at the intersection of Berry Lane and the Pacific Highway. Uh, I spoke to several police, including detectives from Catwood, the Homicide Squad and uh, Crime Scene. Uh, those police basically told me what they'd done. Uh, one of the uniformed sergeants at the scene had maintained a crime scene log and the crime scene itself was preserved. So there were crime scene takers around the scene and also there were guards posted at various locations around the scene. Um, I saw that there, what appeared to be areas of concentrated pool blood staining on the road surface of Berry Lane. Um, at the time, there was subdued lighting in the, in the area and it was obviously a cold August morning. David's taken to uh, Royal Northshire Hospital from the crime scene. Uh, at the hospital, uh, life's pronounced extinct, which is a, a way of saying that David's passed away. He's been taken to the morgue, um, where there's a number of uh, 
forensic procedures done on David just to uh, check if we can get some forensic evidence. Uh, he may have come in contact with the uh, the offender, and then they conduct a post mortem on David, um, where they just the, establishing the cause of death uh, and listing all the injuries that David has sustained during the, the vicious attack that occurred. David was stabbed 24 times to his head, chest, back, both arms, and left leg. Two of the stab wounds to his back caused a perforated aorta and left lung. He suffered blunt force trauma to his head and a boot mark to his rib area. So the crime scene thoroughly processed and then we conduct a search or we conducted a search using SES personnel and police in an attempt to locate the, uh, the weapon, the murder weapon or weapons. So they, they conducted what they call a line search um, and they search all the gutters and everything around the scene to see if they can locate the weapon. And in this case, look, we didn't locate the weapon at the scene. Um, we also established David's last movements. This is done through speaking to um, work colleagues, friends and family. They, they let us know that David was working, for instance, at a hotel in uh, the city. Um, and then the arrangements that he'd made later in the night to go to his friend's place at, at um, Greenwich. It, because it was in the middle of the night as well, it was very sort of a lonely, everything, all the streets were quiet, everyone was asleep. His parents were still tucked up in bed asleep. His friends were still tucked up in bed asleep, none the wiser of what was going on. And that really hit me that night. I just felt that there were Phil and I knowing what's happened and no one else knows, and it just made me feel really sad. Um, that, and, and it was, it's just eerie. It's just an eerie, awful feeling. And also Phil and I were the ones that had to tell a lot of his friends, and that was hard as well. You know, so it's the first sort of person they had to hear from was either Phil or myself. So that was hard as well, yeah. For seven years, David was in a relationship with Vanessa. They had remained close and spoke often. I asked Vanessa to describe their relationship. He, I think when I first met him, it was kind of like being seen for the first time, like he got me and I got him so you know when he died that part of my soul that was illuminated by his life kind of died too. Vanessa says she can remember being told the news of David's death as though it was yesterday. Yeah sorry um I was living in Western Australia and I'd last spoken to Dave on his birthday um and I think it was about 8 o'clock Western Australian time, so 10 or 11 in Sydney. And I was leaving to go to the beach with my dog and Dave's brother rang and said to me um, what, what he knew at the time, which was there's been an altercation outside of St Leonard's Tavern and as a result of his injuries, David's been killed or David has died. Yeah, I was alone. My partner was at work. And I was a long way from Sydney. It was bad. Oh. I, I loved him and I lost him and somebody took him and nothing's been done. I don't, I don't know what happened. 
And then Vanessa tells me something that makes the hairs on my arms stand up on end. On the morning of David's murder, she receives a cryptic phone call. It's from someone she has never spoken to before. It makes me question, who was David and did he provoke someone? She ra- she rang to tell me, basically, and I, I, I had already spoken to Dave's brother and then um, Phil had called me, so I knew. Um, and she said that she, she said, I guess it all finally caught up with him. In the next chapter of 8 Minutes, you will find out who David was, his relationships, his lifestyle, and you'll hear from the people who knew him best. He was a popular guy, and I guess his circle of friends was so wide that, you know, if you didn't see him for a while, then, you know, perhaps there'd be someone new there on the scene. Yeah, he was was good, Nicole. He was important. He was... I think it was one of the first times in my life that... I met somebody who saw me. Could the key to solving this murder mystery be something to do in David's past? You will hear from David's parents, his ex-girlfriends, school friends and the lead detective on the case. In this cold case murder mystery, everyone is a person of interest. Women loved him because he was a really nice guy. To help us catch a killer, go to dailytelegraph.com.au. The podcast Faith on Trial looks into Hillsong, both in Australia and the U.S., and takes both the listener and hosts on unexpected twists and turns in the story of Brian Houston and the singing preachers. There are two incidents involving Pastor Brian. The Australian journalists uncovered a litany of alleged criminal behavior in the megachurch. Financial gifts were being given to the leaders of the church. Listen to Faith on Trial Hillsong ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts today or wherever you get your podcasts.